That's good. I'm excited. It's been a busy four weeks, especially, especially since Sarah and I got back from our wonderful holiday. Um, it's, it's been a really busy summer, uh, but one that I've really enjoyed. I'm excited about what I believe God is asking and calling us to in the future. Uh, and so today is the first of a five-part series that will finish uh, the week before um, October 14th. And this series is really a series that is a reminder of who we are and what we're about as a church. And so the, the large series title is Our Real Life um, uh, Vision. Our vision is to see lives transformed by Jesus Christ in the Okanagan Valley. I say it two or three times every week because that's what we're about as a church. How do we see lives transformed by Jesus Christ in the Okanagan Valley? And then R-E-A-L, Real Life stands for redemption. We believe in the redeemed life, the gospel. We believe in the empowered life, um, being filled with the Spirit and listening to the Spirit and being renewed by the Spirit. We believe in the active life, that we should be doing stuff, that, you know, obedience follows being in love with Jesus. And then L, the listening life, the prayer, the being cognizant of what God is saying. So under the umbrella of real life, What does that look like for us at the South? And so this week, I want to start off what really is four weeks of training um, that starts on the uh, September the, what would it be, the 16th. I really want to encourage you to come for those four weeks because we're going to be looking at very practical ways that we can position ourselves well to be everything that God has called us to be in this place. That's part of the reason why we've employed and filled this role, is what does this church's role look like for the neighbors that are right around, of which some come to the south, but not enough. I'm looking forward to seeing more come. Like, um, and this is a very well-known challenge, but if the south, Willow Park Church South, was suddenly to disappear, would we be missed? That's a big question. And one that I wrestled over. What's it look like for Crawford? Over there. What's it look like for Kettle Valley? What's it look like for Lower Mission? What's it look like for Southeast Kelowna? What's it look like for Glenmore? All the, all the areas that, that we are called to, how do we position ourselves for the mission? The mission that God has given us. And so that's my subtitle for this message these series of messages for the mission. I like that because we've been called to a mission in the mission, for the mission. So what does this look like? So this is part one for the mission. And this just frames, this is like putting on a, a proper, well, really good um, prescribed pair of glasses that we look at everything else through this lens that I want to present to you this morning. So I'm going to turn to the scriptures in just a second But first, I want to uh, just give you a little bit of background. A few weeks ago, I said to my my two boys that we were going to do something, just the three of us. And so immediately, the first thing that comes to their mind was, well, it's going to involve food, junk food, where we go in for food. And then they were like, are we going to go play golf? And then, then it was, then they just started listing all the different things that they were really hoping that we would do. And all the time I'm listening to this feeling more and more bad because I'm thinking, yeah, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> um, so, but, so anyway, I got them in the car and they're starting asking questions. I went down the hill. We live in Kettle Valley. Went down the hill. And then we came to St. Andrew's Church, a little church just across the way from Sunshine Market. And I turned right into St. Andrew's Church and Luke and Jack are like, what are we doing? 
no, you'll see, you'll see. So we, we park up, there's nobody in the car lot. I park the car and we get out and we walk around the back of St. Andrew's Church. And for those of you who've been around a lot, and maybe you've noticed, there's a graveyard in the back of St. Andrew's Church. And so I said to them, I said, look, it was really hot that day. I said, go into the, into the graveyard and tell me what you notice. And I'll meet you at the back, which is this beautiful creek running at the back. Tell me what you notice, I'll meet you at the back. Which is, you know, on the list of things that you do with your sons or your children, that isn't number one, right, in Kelowna. Let's go to a graveyard. You know, parenting 101, brilliant. So off they go, and they, you know what, I was really impressed with how respectful they were, first of all, because I didn't tell them, don't walk on the graves. There's, there's an etiquette, right? And, and they were very respectful, and they just walked up and down, and I did the same for a bit, and then I waited at the back. And eventually they came back to me and I said, what did you notice? So they started pointing out that, you know, some of the graves were in disrepair. Some of them had fresh flowers. Some of them, um, some of them were really old. Some of them had very little children in them. Some of them had people who had lived a long, long life and everything in between. Some of them had been buried next to their partners or their children or their brothers and sisters. Some of them, this was a bit, this was a bit strange, and I guess this is quite common, is they had their uh, name and from, you know, born and died. And then next to it, there was a blank space ready for the person who I assume is still alive. I mean, awkward. But anyway, it, it was there. And said, I said, what else did you notice? And we started noticing, thinking a little bit more. And I said, did you notice that, how, how quickly graves are forgotten? Did you notice that, that, that some of them uh, are really well tended and then some of them are just kind of completely forgotten at the back. And I said, do you notice how many of them had the same thing on it? And what I pointed out to them was on many of the graveyards, they had a date by when the person was born and then they had a date when the person died and in the middle, there was a dash. Just a little dash. I said, do you notice how many of them had the little dash? I said, do you realize that the sum of their life on that gravestone is summed up by that dash? So then I asked them this question. How are you going to live your dash? What does your dash look like? Because if you look at the grand scheme of things, that dash can be really, really short. And, and, I, and I've had the, the pleasure of, of leading... Uh, celebration services and funeral services for people that have lived long, good lives. And I've also had the sorrow of leading funeral services and life celebrations for children who are very, very small and everything in between. How are you going to live that dash? Because, because really, when it comes to the way that we celebrate people and, and then the years have gone by, it comes down to that dash. And so I wanted to give them a life lesson. We refer to it. What does the dash look like? What are you going to fill your dash with? What does that time look like? You need to grab it and you need to use it and you need to be powerfully focused on it. That dash can affect the future. It can transform lives. It can leave a legacy. And it doesn't have to be a life filled with great activity or it doesn't have to be lots of possessions or jumping off the side of mountains or crazy stuff. It can just be a life lived well, obediently and well. I think about people in my experience who have left this transformation because they've lived their dash well. 
for some no small part reason, I, I, I'm actually here doing this because of a gentleman, and forgive me if I get the story a little bit wrong, mum and dad, but a gentleman called Joe, who decided that he was going to live his dash telling people like my mum and dad about Jesus. And then they became Christians. And so Joe's dash has actually resulted in a change of trajectory for the Madden family. Because one day he knocked on a door. So it doesn't have to be big activity. It can just be small stuff, obediently done for the right reason. That dash can change lives. And, and so I'm thinking about the church, and I'm thinking, okay, what does our dash look like? Because the reality is this, friends, is that we, I reckon, have got 40 years. Like it, I'm thinking about the kids' age, 40 years to do something that could leave a dash that could transform our community. And I'm, for me, personally, maybe I've got 20 years and I'm not saying, you know, shove me in a cupboard and forget me after 20 years or anything, but being here seven years, what does our dash look like as a church? What does that impact look like? Has it transformed a community? Has it transformed a neighborhood? Has it changed people's lives? Yes, it has in some ways. But then let's personalize it. Does your dash, does your life, does your decision change people's lives as well? So here's what we do in our Western culture. We immediately say, well, it's, it's about what we do. It's about what we do. But I want to show you this morning that actually it's not about what you do. It's about something that empowers your dash. What your, what your life is actually empowered by. What it's focused on. And I want to look at some scripture to help us do that. Um, in Revelation 2, verse 2. Revelation 2, verse 2. This is a really unique passage of Scripture where Jesus is actually addressing seven churches. And, uh, and, so, and, and he points out certain things about these churches. And I, wanna, I just want to focus on these couple of verses. And I want you to think about the dash while we do that. Okay. So he says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, there's a lot of pictorial, metaphorical language in Revelation. It's very poetic. It's a beautiful book. But here's what I want you to notice, that Jesus is assessing these churches. Jesus is assessing life. He looks into our life. He looks into our world. And he sees there are good things and there are things that are not quite the way they should be. But Jesus' presence is showing up in these churches as he walks. And then he, and then he says this, verse 2. I, oh, gone too far. This is me now. I get to control this, so I can't blame Hannah. Oh, dear, Hannah, what's going on? Oh, this is pretty. All right, you... Give me the heads up when we're... Should I try again? Yes. Thank you, Hannah. Maybe I just pressed it and got too overly enthusiastic. I'm quite, quite happy about my new gadget. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and I have found them false. So here's what Jesus is doing with this church. He's pointing out four things. He's saying, listen, there are things that you have done really, really well. I know your deeds. Okay, the first one, he says, is that you are holy. There's a holiness, there's a, there's a respect, uh, there's... Then there's a recognition as well of good doctrine. He says you've persevered. 
And then he says a really unique statement. He says, and you hate the Nicolaitans. Which is, by the way, just in case you think God loves everything. He says, you hate the Nicolaitans like I hate them. Jesus said. Who are the Nicolaitans? They were the people at that time who were actually doing church in such a way where they weren't preaching the gospel. They were just making people feel good about themselves. They, they, were just, they, were, they were ignoring all the kind of aspects of the gospel that were true gospel, and they were preaching their own gospel, which, by the way, our culture is full of. So he's saying, look, you do all these things really, really well. I want you to notice that they're doing things well. That their dash, if you like, is being done well. I look at this church, I go, okay, so it's centered on holiness, it's got good doctrine, it's persevering, it's, you know, it's, it's strong, it keeps going, and they have a strong sense of the gospel. That sounds like a really good church. Yet I hold this against you. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So he's saying, look, you're doing all the right things but you're still missing it. So we can think of it in a church level, that we're, as a church at the South, we've got a high regard for the gospel, high regard for the Bible. We want to unapologetically preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, even if that makes people feel uncomfortable. We want to have a high regard on holiness and prayer. These are all good things that we are doing. It's good. And we can look at life like this. You might have a high regard for things. You've got good activities going. You're doing really, really well. These are all good things. But then Jesus may look into our lives, look into our church and say, but this I have against you. You have forsaken, in other words, abandoned, forgotten the love you had at first. You see, just because we do the right things in life, you can still have experiences where you feel weary and you feel like you're lacking peace. Because you just feel like all you're doing is doing. But Jesus is saying you're still missing it. It's not what you do. If your dash is filled only with activity and with business and family and go, 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 I'm doing in order so that I can leave a legacy in the future, you are potentially still missing it. Because this church were doing good things, but they had forsaken the love that they had. They'd abandoned it. They'd forgotten it. So here's very simply what this message is about. Your activity, your dash is empowered for the future. It leaves a legacy. It's impactful. It's life transforming, life transforming if you are doing it for the right motivation, which is the love of God. If you are not doing it for the correct motivation, then it is all for nothing. It's just a dash. But if you want your dash to actually have impact in people's lives, if you want to be the type of parent that brings children up, not just giving them things and doing things for them, but leaving them a legacy which they will stand on, which will be life transforming into the future, then you need to make sure your dash is empowered by the love of Jesus. If you want to have a good business, if you want to have a good workplace, if you want to live a good godly life that is life transforming for people around you and into the future, then you need to do it with your dash being illuminated by the love of God. Otherwise, it just becomes a forgotten dash at the back of a graveyard. So what does that look like for us? Do you have that? When I first became a Christian, I remember 
we were actually sharing our story with a, with a, a couple of new people in the church. Um, actually, we've, we've shared it a couple of times about when I first became a Christian and, and, um, and I came back from having visited some friends and, um, in the south of England and I came back and I was just full of Jesus. I just loved Jesus. I just was so in love with him and I was invigorated. I was energetic. It's like, man, I just hit things hard and let's go for it. I came back to the young adult group. I was 18 this young adult group had been together for a while and it's a long story but I, I wasn't really connected with them I was a bit of a village idiot to be honest and just and I just wasn't interested and in care and then I went away for a week and I came back and this might not surprise you I basically just took over the leadership of this group I was just like right this is what the bible says let's go do it I was invigorated and energized by the love of Jesus I was doing the right things. I was reading my Bible. I was praying. I was sharing the love of Jesus with people. I started preaching. I was serving in my church. I was doing all these things. And my motivation was because I'm loved by Jesus and I love him. And it invigorated and energized the activity in my life. And maybe that's your testimony. Maybe your testimony as a Christian is there was a time when you felt invigorated and energized and felt like, man, I'm so close to God. I feel close to Jesus. And because you're loved by Jesus and he loves you, that's where your power and empowerment came from. Peace and freedom followed. Because you can do all those things. Read your Bible, pray. You can even preach and serve in the church. You can do it for the wrong motivation and it's actually legalistic and takes energy away from you. So as we look at what we should be doing in our own lives and in our own church, we need to make sure that our dash is invigorated, empowered by the love of Jesus. Because friends, a church without the power of God in it is a really, really bad club to be part of. It really is. Because if you look at this here, this back end of this verse, it says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The presence of Jesus will be removed. Sure, you can carry on and call yourself a church, but are people's lives being transformed? When people come in, are they sensing the presence of God? Because if we don't have the presence of God in this church, then we're just a really poor club. But a church that is filled is enlivened, enlightened by the lampstand presence of Jesus is life-transforming in Okanagan Valley. And so we need to make sure that as we look at doing some things a little bit differently maybe or highlighting some things, we need to make sure we're doing it for the love of Jesus. So that when we grow, we're doing it because we love Jesus. We're not doing it just for growth's sake. When we start an activity or we do things slightly differently, we're doing it for the love of Jesus because that's invigorating and empowering and actually results in something that Jesus will be pleased with. Friends, in your own life, do you feel like the lampstand's been removed? It was there. Man, it shone bright. You could feel the energy and the love and the power of Christ in your life. You loved Him. But somehow it's like it's just been put back there. You just feel like you're just doing activities now. Maybe that's what church is like for you. Maybe that's what life is like for you. You invigorated by your love for Jesus. I love going on dates with Sarah. And in my mind's eye, I was thinking about what it would look like if we didn't have any love for one another. Like dating somebody you have no connection with or enjoyment of. 
that's just just something you've got to get through. You know, all the energy is just goes. Whereas when you're in love, you can just spend time with one another. You don't even have to do much in order to enjoy one another's presence. And that's exactly the same with God. You see, we should be invigorated by our love for Him. And then this is what happens. And please listen to this. This is really important. It actually starts leaving a dash that impacts lives. When you're invigorated by the love of Jesus, not just by the activity in itself, but invigorated by a bigger why, then what happens is your marriages get impacted, your relationships get impacted, your children get impacted. It starts leaving a legacy into the future because they don't just look at the activity. Your children don't just look at your activity in life. They look at your motivation for why you're doing it and their lives start changing. Your relationships start solidifying. Your workplaces start becoming more peaceful. And also, here's the reason why it gets more peaceful, because you become more peaceful. You workplace may be as chaotic as ever but you have a bigger why you can walk in and go you know what this is challenging but I have a God who loves me and I love him I have a bigger reason to be on this earth other than just clocking in and clocking out I have a bigger reason to be on this earth rather than just making money or, or taking my kids to the next football game or whatever it might be that suddenly you have a higher calling you have a higher calling those challenging parenting moments, the challenging colleague, the challenging relationships, you have a a fixed attention on something far more important, which is the love of Jesus in your life. And, And here's what happens. Your criticism reduces, fear reduces, anxiety reduces, judgment disappears. Because if you're loved by a God and He loves you so much, then how are you going to judge somebody in an unrighteous way about their sin when God loves you so much? You see, there's a holiness that comes in. There's a desire to serve. So I guess the big question I have this morning is, is how's the lampstand? Have you ever had a lampstand in your life? Have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever come into a relationship with Jesus? See, it includes us all. Because even if you're on a faith journey, in some way you have forsaken the love you had at first because you were created for a purpose. And then that purpose gets broken and you're trying to like, this is why we believe in in Adam and Eve that there's sin that comes into the world and it breaks it and you start believing that you can do life by yourself all the time forsaking God and his original plan for you. You've forsaken that and just pressed on in your own way. So I had some fun and Googled, because, you know, Google's the answer to everything. What What are people's answers to a life lived well? How do you live a life well? Google. Thought I could just save all this wonderful people a lot of time and hassle coming on Sunday morning. I'll just Google and find out what Google says and send it out to them. How do you live your life well? How how do you make your dash really effective? Psychology Today. Ooh, that sounds like a decent publication. Anything with the word today on, I always think, yeah, that's legit. Like cycling today. Not tomorrow or yesterday or last week, but today. Psychology Today. Click. So the question they asked was, perfect. How do you live a life well? Here's the answers. You ready? Don't sweat the stuff that you have no control over. Learn people skills. This is how to live life well. Never put your self-worth in anyone else's hands. Live below your means. Always keep a part of your life in service to your fellow man. It is not all about you. Ironic, because everything so far has all been about them. 
doesn't it? You notice that? It's all about you so far, but don't make it all about you. Okay. Do not follow the crowd. Life changes. Be adaptable and enjoy the process. Strive for the best. Prepare for the worst. And I wrote at the end of that, is that it? Is that life lived well? I mean, they're, yeah, great, sure, let's do all that. But really, is that going to leave a legacy and a transforming life for years to come? So actually, Jesus gives us an answer here as to how we do it. This little word here, repent. Because repentance means that you need to reflect and you need to think about your own life. You need to start and slow down and think, okay, am I living life well? What is my motivation? Am I just so caught up in the activity that I'm just not feeling invigorated and energetic and full of peace anymore? Am I doing what I'm doing for the right reasons? Or have I forsaken my first love? Just put him down and walked away. Still doing the stuff that Christians should do, but you know that you're not filled with that sense of his presence. See, Jesus sets a really high standard in Luke 10 about what love should be like. And he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. So you've got emotions, you've got intellect, you've got physicality, you've got motivation there with your heart. Do you love God? Do you love God in all these different aspects of your life? But not just love Him, but with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Have you forsaken any aspect of that when it comes to your love of God in your life? Or is it more like this? You shall love the Lord your God with a section of your heart, with a bit of your soul, with part of your strength when you have time, and with some of your mind. Because this word, all, is really, really powerful. Because as a Christian, we are called to all. We're called to all, not some. It's the all part of the dash that actually makes our life legacy-leaving. It's the all-out passion. And so here's what's the beauty of this. It doesn't matter what you do anymore as much as why you do it, because the why you do it will dictate whether or not it's all or some that you are following after Jesus. And the more you follow after him and more all it is, then actually your dash becomes more effective. So you may not have this amazing array of activities. It may be that you look at your life and go, man, I wish I was doing more. Whereas Jesus is saying, no, all I want you to do is give me your all. That's all. (laughs) Simple as that. That's all he wants. I want to... Um, Vancouver a couple of years ago and I was thinking about as I was traveling down the question that was posed to Solomon and he was asked and I'm coming to a close with this he was asked I will give you anything through the prophet he said, he said if you ask anything of God he will give it you what, what are you going to ask and of course we know that Solomon asked for wisdom and that was a, a smart ironically wise answer And he was given wisdom, and that wisdom was a hallmark of his reign as king. And I really felt as I was driving, and I was praying, and I was thinking, that God asked me the same question. He said, if if I could give you anything at all, what would it be? And I was like, oh, well, this is going to be exciting. I wonder if he'll answer in the same way that he answers Solomon, and actually do it. 
And so I really thought about it. I thought, I've got a long drive. I'm going to be very careful. So I thought about something, and then I would analyze it and go, well, actually, is that all-encompassing? Is that the best I can do? You know, like that whole joke, like, you know, you've got three wishes. Well, I'll ask, well, my first wish is I want three more. You know, I, I really want to make sure that I ask right. And so I decided that if I was asked that question by God, here was what my answer would be. Is that I would want to be consumed, and, and this sounds awfully holy of me, okay? But I figured that if I got this right, then everything else would follow. And what I asked was that I would get a strong sense of how loved I am by God. How much He loves me. Because there are days when the self-talk starts, when I go, you're not good enough, Glenn. How on earth do you think that God is ever going to love you when you're like that? If I could just have that prayer answered and be constantly reminded of how loved I am by God, that my love for Him would increase, that I wouldn't forsake His love, that I would have this strong sense of how loved I am and I would love Him as a result. And I find that to be very, very biblical. Because I think about Peter, who really was the renegade disciple. You know, I resonate a lot with Peter. He was a fast runner. Uh, sorry, he was a slow runner. John was quicker than him to the tomb, but he was first in the tomb. I just had this vision of Peter blundering around a little bit, if I'm honest. And if you remember Peter, and I want you to listen to this, especially the younger ones in the room, especially. When you look at Peter, he did this massive mistake at the end of his life. He denied Jesus. Jesus predicted it and said, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no, 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 that's not me. I'm going to be with you to the end, Jesus. And then we know the story. He stood by the fire pit with a little girl. The little girl says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he goes, no, that wasn't me. And then the rooster crowed, remember? And then he does that three times and he actually gets mad and swears. And the rooster crows again. And it says in Luke, this incredible verse, you should read it. It says, just as Peter denied Jesus, it says, Jesus walked through the court and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what would have gone through Peter's mind? This devastating moment where he'd let down his king, his friend, his brother, the one who he declared he loved. Let him down. And Jesus looks at Peter. Now in another sermon I preached, I talk about the look of Christ. And I talk about how I wonder what Jesus was thinking when he looked at Peter. Told you, I knew you'd do it. I predicted it. You let me down. What on earth is going on? Just when I needed a friend, you let me down. Great, perfect. Thanks, Peter. That would have been Glenn. <laughs> you know, probably through an angry text. All thumbs, no fingers. Sarah, Sarah texts with a finger like that. I text that. What would Jesus have actually thought? You know what I think? I don't know. I'm going to ask him one day. But I wonder whether he thought, upon that rock, I'm going to build my church. At Peter's worst moment, I wonder what Jesus thought. And I'm going to guess it was something like that. Upon that rock, I'm going to build my church. And he's going to be called Rock. And I have some proof to that because later on, 
when Peter basically shrugged his shoulders and said, right, I'm going fishing. Screwed up so bad, I'm just going to go fishing. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and you can read it at the end of, um, at the end of John. And, uh, and Jesus is on, he basically makes breakfast for the disciples. And Peter is so excited to see his Lord, he jumps in. And you read it, it actually says he puts on his coat to jump in. Which I always thought, it shows he's not very smart. But I'm sure there's a good biblical reason why he did that, which some of you will remind me later, but whatever. He, he jumps in the water, so I'm going to put my coat on and jump in the lake. I mean, I just think that's funny. And he swam, and he gets there, and then Jesus says to Peter, he asks him three questions, which is kind of interesting, given there was three roosters. He said, Peter, do you love me? And when he says that, he asks him, he says, it's a type of love where he says, do you really love me in a divine, deep way, Peter? And Peter's answer, it says in the scripture, it says love, but it's a different type of love. He says, yes, of course I love you in a friendship kind of way. And Jesus says, no, do you really love me? Of course I love you. Do you really love me? Of course I love you. And then at the end of each of those, Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Here's what's incredible about that interaction with Jesus, is that right away, Jesus declares over Peter his love and respect for him. He doesn't point out all the problems. It's like he gets hold of the lampstand and puts it back. But then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I love that Jesus in the darkest moments motivation was that I love you. Do you love me? Yeah, I kind of like you, Lord. It's pretty much what Peter said. Of course I like you. No, do you love me? Of course I like you. No, Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? And I just got a sense this morning as I was praying that that's the question. Do we love Jesus? Is that what is emboldened and lightens our life? Is that what we are defined by, our love for Jesus? Because just the same way that Jesus said to Peter, then go feed my sheep, then placing Jesus center of our life, center of our dash, saying and declaring that Jesus is number one, that we do love him, always shifts our position, that shifts our priority. Because if we really do believe that Jesus is centered and we were loved by him and that we love him, then we have to change our priorities. He has to become center. Then it becomes all. But I want you to know more than anything as we leave today, as I finish, is that you are loved so deeply by the God of the universe do you love me? Glenn, do you love me? Sarah, do you love me? Because if you love me, then go feed my sheep. If you love me, then shift your priorities, Peter. If you love me, don't forsake your first love. Don't replace your first love with just activities and doing the right thing as a dad. Don't replace first love for Jesus as doing lots of activities as a mum or as a brother or sister or student or business owner. Don't make your, your life about what you do. Make it about what you love the most. And I've said this lots of times. The most loving thing we can do for our children is to love Jesus more than them. The most loving thing we can do for our friends is to love Jesus more than them. The most loving thing we can do for our husband, our wife, 
our colleagues, our workplaces, our city, is to love Jesus more than them. Why? Because as we love him, we'll be far more effective in seeing life transformation in them. And as we move into the fall and we go, okay, what is it we should be doing differently? I don't want the activity to become the main thing. I want our love for Jesus to become the main thing. I want the prayer to be just like Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He said that, God, that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. More than anything, Lord, give that church of Ephesus, which, by the way, is the same church that Jesus was talking about. Give that Ephesians church a high regard and intimacy in the knowledge of you. Give them that, Lord. Give them that. Because if they've got that, everything else will follow. Do we have that? Do we have that? So how do we foster that? It's beautifully simple. And we already know the answer to it. Jesus said it in the scripture. He says, repent. Repentance to me means sitting down, putting everything aside, putting my everything away, switching everything off, which takes time because there's a lot of things to switch off. Like, you know, because we surround ourselves with gadgets. And it's just me and the Lord. Maybe it's a walk and it's repent. And you know what I love is that Jesus will do exactly to you and to me what he did with Peter. I'm going to make you breakfast, Peter, and I'm going to remind you about the calling that I've given you. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have designed and created us to live our life, live our dash well. But Lord, that you have given us everything we need to make much of you. Lord, you've given us a mission. You've given us a call. And Lord, for even those in the room who are just on a faith journey and wouldn't call themselves Christians necessarily, Lord, that there's a mark of you upon humanity, upon our dash. And Lord, I pray that more than anything this morning, that we would leave in this place having the truth resounding in our hearts, in our minds, and in our spirits, that we are a people who are loved. We're loved. Even when we see ourselves as completely unlovable and failures and running just like Peter, that we're loved. And God, just like Paul, I can't give justice to that truth. And so Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That God, that my prayer on that day when I drove in my car would be answered. That more than anything, Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of how much we are loved by you. And it's going to be okay. And Lord, I pray that our priorities would line up with our declaration. And that, Lord, that you would use this church in our communities in ways that we could only dream about. Lord, I pray surprises over this next chapter with the way that you 
see, the way you save people, the way that lives are being transformed. And God, I pray that in your wisdom you would use us as a people who love you. God, I pray that the dash of our life, however long it might be, would be illuminated by your love and our love for you.